Welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast, leading the way in the business of medicine. Now here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. I'm your host, Terry Fletcher. The EDGE podcast is brought to you today by the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants. Our goal is to discuss healthy business principles, have conversations on the business side of medicine so that you and your practice can thrive, be profitable, and successful for years to come. So today we're going to focus on telehealth and are here to ask certain questions. Number one, telehealth, is your practice taking it seriously or is this a public health emergency stopgap? Also, what are the uh, physician fee schedule telehealth changes when we talk about Medicare? And with many patients that can only participate in audio-only telehealth, how will this change your adoption of telehealth in your practice post-PHE future? Well, those are some of the topics we want to tackle today. And with those topics, I have with me Grant Huang of Doctors Management. Grant brings extensive knowledge to his role as Director of Content at Doctors Management. He produces educational products that help ensure that auditors, coders, practice managers, and administrators optimize their organization's revenue cycle while improving their compliance in today's complex regulatory environment. Grant is an auditor with proficiency in multiple specialties and also has experience in healthcare analytics, including benchmark provider billing patterns. Grant, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Terry, and I'm happy to be here with you today. Great. We are very happy to have you. And Grant and I have also, we've uh, gone back and forth on some of those Medicare office hours calls. And as soon as I write down a question, I'm, he asks the question. So it's almost like you, you hear what I'm thinking. Yeah, well, uh, a lot of the time uh, I find that um, those are one of the few uh, opportunities we have in the industry of uh, getting a straight answer, more or less, out of CMS. And, um, you know, I mean, what we are not in journalists, so to speak, but we are in the position of kind of trying to clarify and communicate uh, all of these things about complex, you know, regulatory stuff to the provider uh, and administrator community. And it's it's hard to get definitive answers from CMS on stuff. So much of what's put out is stuff that you have to interpret. And so when we're able to ask a question of CMS and you have some CMS official on the other end of the line say, well, here's my response. Then of course you and I immediately write that down and we say, we can point to that and say, well, look, here's what the agency has officially said you know, about X, Y, or Z. Exactly. And, it, and it's actually tough. And you brought it up too, you know, as educators and auditors like we are, and also people are out there writing articles and blogging on the topics. Sometimes we feel like we're out on an island and we're not able to have conversations to address some of these telehealth questions that come up with our physician clients, with many healthcare professionals. And I think there are many medical practices that are operating on what they're doing now and haven't really looked or have had time to consider what they're going to do post public health emergency, so post PHE. So with that in mind, you and I both have participated again in those Medicare office hour bi-monthly, actually monthly, now bi-monthly calls, and we seem to be the only ones asking the question about originating site, even though in one of the publications out there we were talking about Part B News, they have started finally talking about the, the place of service of where the patient is. But I have a question for you. What are your thoughts on the 2021 physician telehealth changes in the fee schedule and which services will stay and go under those Medicare coverage rules um, are you anticipating or projecting? 
Uh, well, so first off, like you said, some of the most consequential changes um, or waivers, I should say, that are in place for the duration of the public health emergency uh, are things that will go away once that uh, declaration ends, including the originating site uh, waiver. And, and obviously, that's a huge one. You know, if you look at the history of Medicare coverage for telehealth, it's always been bottlenecked by this restriction on originating sites. And, uh, you know, for the longest time, the advocacy groups that have lobbied uh, to change this, like the American uh, Telemedicine Association, they've always tried to fight this. And it really took a pandemic to finally uh, get the government to kind of drop that. And as, as a result, uh, we, we've seen the telehealth utilization explode. And that's something that's simply not going to be uh, preserved uh, without congressional action, without federal legislation, because CMS does not have the statutory authority to uh, to maintain that waiver after the public health emergency ends. And you know, they make that clear, you know, in the final rule. They've admitted, you know, as as much um, on some of these uh, open door calls that, that we've been on. Um, so, with that out of the way, and and you know, it, we can always hope. Uh, that as proponents of, of more patient access to care, we can always hope that um, the, the Biden administration might take a look at that and, and maybe promote that. Um, you know, I, I think telehealth, hopefully, it, the benefits of it at least, uh, would be a bipartisan issue, an issue that there would be you know, bipartisan support for. Um, but as far as the final rule itself, um, you know, they, they tried to preserve uh, as much as they could, I would say. Um, you know, they, they came up with three categories for telehealth services, uh, one being the, the category of services that will be removed from Medicare's telehealth eligible list uh, when the health emergency status ends. Uh, one, the second category will be those services that are temporarily added to the telehealth eligible list. Uh, and they'll actually be in effect uh, through the end of the calendar year in which the public health emergency declaration ends. So, you know, if let's just say, for example, the PHE uh, ends at, at this year, let's say it ends in September, uh, I'm just making this up. Uh, that these category of codes will actually continue to be in effect until December 31st of this year, which would be the year in which the PHE ends. Um, so the idea there from CMS was to give itself some time to gather more data to determine whether or not these services should be permanently on the list. And these temporary additions would include things like critical care services, um, inpatient uh, neonatal pediatric critical care, uh, a lot end-stage renal disease monthly capitation payment codes, emergency department visits, a lot of these things that you could sort of see a case for for telehealth. Um, but you know you have to think about what it means for, from a utilization standpoint, from a cost standpoint to a budget limited you know, program like Medicare, which is why I think they want to see, do the costs kind of, are the costs offset by, you know, the outcomes? Is it going to result in an overall increase in utilization and expenditures that just wouldn't be sustainable? 
I agree. I, th I think one of the one things that I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around is the fact that everybody thinks there's kind of an open-ended checkbook when it comes right. to Medicare. And because we've seen the explosion, and like you said, it was necessary under the public health emergency, no question. But the one thing that's tough is that, and I'm hoping the fact that telehealth got put on the OIG work plan for 2021, That's this is what they're looking at before any kind of knee-jerk final adoption oh, uh, yeah. as far as the place of service. But is it being done because of convenience or is it being done because of effectiveness? I mean, rheumatologists are saying that telehealth doesn't work for them and oncology says it's really hard to, to do telehealth. Even cardiology is having some issues. And so um, I, I just believe that it's a great addition to a practice, and it's definitely uh, helped a lot of patients that couldn't have access otherwise, like you said. But I think it's also, and we've seen this with the, you know, the announcements we've seen on OIG, it's caused some fraud schemes, it's caused some overutilization. And I had a practice the other day just tell me that, well, now that my nurse can go ahead and call patients and bill for office visits. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> your, your NP or your RN? No, my RN. She's been here 20 years, so she's just like an MP. And I, my head exploded. <laughs> I'm like, okay, back <laughs> the train up. Like, yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> and there she was, he was basically, the doctor was basically saying that, you know, she's basically just going around calling patients and charging for phone calls and because yeah. she can now. And I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I don't doubt that an RN with 20 years of experience could handle some some of these cases over the phone. But, you know, obviously that's just not the way, you know, the rules work. Exactly. And that's um, the thing. They're not qualified healthcare providers, yeah, you know, right. professionals. So, right. so moving on with what, we're, what you were talking about, um, let's just project once the PHE ends. And I know right now for those listeners that are on, to, it says right now on the PHE.gov that it's supposed to end April 21st. Well, what right. it says, it was extended till another 90 days, so eight, through April 21st. I would probably guess they're probably going to extend it again if we don't see a huge decrease in oh, yeah. COVID yeah. cases. Um, but let's just say that it ends at some point, like let's just project the fall this year. You know, platforms that they've allowed under the, the CARES Act, uh, the Skype and the FaceTime, I don't you agree that they'll not be allowed because they're not HIPAA protected? Yeah, yeah, that was another you know crucial uh, waiver, um, and and that hasn't even been enough to increase access to certain patient populations. Uh, but the I, the way it was phrased as a waiver was simply that um, the OIG would choose to exercise its discretionary power not to enforce. HIPAA uh, for cases where a non-secure, non-encrypted, uh, you know, two-way video audio communications platform was used, so long as you know, there's documentation showing it was done in good faith was the term. And that's funny that you said that because I had a conversation with somebody recently who actually just got their first audit request under telehealth. Boy, they really rolled that out quick. And and I also audit for for some Medicare uh, Max. And they basically said, we're being audited. They're asking us for 30 records per physician. And I said, well, they must have seen some kind of a utilization issue. And they said, well, what does it mean that the letter we got says that we're checking to see if you acted in good faith? And I said, well, remember, that's the OIG and CMS definition of good faith. What they feel was medically necessary, not necessarily what the physician felt it was. So this could be an, an interesting kind of concept as as you know, telehealth is being audited. But the other thing you said, you know, the 
the OIG said on the Skype and FaceTime is that they would not enforce a rule that's already there as long as it's good faith. But I still have my clients put in the record that the patient was informed that this may not be HIPAA protected. What do you say? Yeah, and I think that's very smart because uh, we don't know uh, precisely how they might choose to uh, define good faith when it comes time to to audit this. Um, you know, it, there's certainly and and the best practices that that we've recommended too are things kind of basic things, common sense things. But nevertheless, you know, you should codify these things. Like, for example, if the if the physician's going to do uh, telehealth encounters in the office or even at home. Obviously, you should tell them to keep the door closed so you don't have other people walking in when they're on with a patient uh, and, and violating that that patient's privacy. Um, you know, you should document that uh, the patient was, like you were saying, offered a secure platform if you have one. And you should have one if you're doing telehealth, certainly before the, the pandemic. But even after, there's, there are these, you know, secure clinical platforms that are out there. And say, well, you know, it was the patient didn't have access to that, and you know, the, the there was an emergent need in the pandemic for them to just hop on Skype or or what have you. I think that those are all good things uh, to to uh, good practices to follow from a compliance standpoint. And it's not mandated, of course, but you know, whenever the government gives you you know a certain amount of rope, you, you don't want to hang yourself with it. Uh, you you want to use that as carefully as you can. And I think you know. Since my background, <laughs> right, my background is, is a lot in compliance. And, you know, you want to, you want to be careful when you can. Exactly. And the, the other thing is, too, is I, I think, and I always bring up this comment whenever I'm talking to somebody about, or a practice or a healthcare professional, about things that are done that become habit forming. So for example, um, when you have something like the real for for example when an employer gives somebody a vacation they usually give them a vacation for two weeks because then after that people don't want to come back to work because they're like well i've been off for two weeks this is great you know so it's hard right. to do that well we thought the pandemic remember that whole uh, last march you know 15 days um quarantine to slow the spread and now we're right. we're going on a year and it's going to be hard to roll back things. I mean, in the words of Seema Verna, you know, she basically was, Verma, she was like, you know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. But in saying that, patients are going to have to realize that once the, the PHE ends, we have to get back to what a flexibility doesn't have. You know, will, will practices now put in that approved software or will they get HIPAA protected um, you know, patches for their already in place EMR system. Do you think they'll put in the expense and, and continue, or do you think it's based on patient population? Uh, I think it could be based on patient population. You know, I, I think if they were going to do um, anything, they might take the smaller steps first that wouldn't require an act of Congress. Um, you, you know, something as seemingly uncontroversial as, you know, eliminating the original originating sites rule has to go through, you know, uh, a budgeting process, you know, has there have to be projections on what it increased the costs of the program. And, and then it starts to get political when there's money attached to it. And, uh, you know, they never passed anything uh, standalone anymore. It seems like it, it always gets latched onto something, some other bigger legislation that has nothing to do with it. Exactly. Um, so there, there's no, uh, I, I wouldn't bet anything on the originating sites thing, even though, again, it seems like a nonpartisan and, and you know, non-controversial 
issue. Um, you know, on, on things like if you, so if you're a practice that uh, has really gotten your patients to buy in to telehealth and, and, and you have uh, your patients who are willing and, and um, happy to engage on telehealth and feel like they're getting something out of these uh, remote visits, then um, I think it absolutely makes sense to look into the steps you can take now while you still have the waivers to transition to a point where you can continue to do a pretty good volume of telehealth services and just assume that um, you know a lot of these waivers are going to go away and, and you're going to have to invest in a uh, secure HIPAA protected platform. And you're gonna have to invest in a patient education and outreach to teach them how to use that platform on their end. And you're gonna have to look at, are you uh, outside of a metropolitan statistical area so you can comply with the originating sites thing? That's what I've been trying to explain to a lot of practices too, is they said, well, look at all the things that are covered now into telehealth. And I said, it's under the flexibilities. It means that those things still may be covered, but the qualifier on where the patient is, is what's going to be rolled back. So you still may have, you know, category one, two, and three, who knows, but the qualifier is what's going to be tough. So you can have all these things that are, you know, um, uh, covered, but that means that patient isn't in particular, isn't in one of those, you know, HRSA areas or metropolitan depressed areas, like you said. And I think the one thing that uh, was put in the final rule, well, I know it was there, was the fact they are going to roll back audio only. And they have created a, a HICS-PICS code for that, but it's definitely only for one audio only phone call and there's rules on it. Um, because I know that, that the phone call codes were never covered before. It was a gift right. now and right. they just don't have the funding for it. Right. Yeah. So let me move on to, we're talking Medicare, what seems like, because Medicare, and just so the listeners know, the reason that we always talk Medicare is because Medicare, it clearly defines it in their rules. Medicare is out there. Most of you probably have a 30 to 40% Medicare practice or higher. But what about the commercial plans? I think this is probably the most frustrating for most coders, billers, professionals, physicians, any practices, because there's such a wide disparity in, in uh, coverage guidelines by the commercial payers, not only for audio only services, but for telehealth adoption. And it's all different, even down to the coding, the modifiers, how you report it. And for example, I have Blue Cross Blue Shield of Anthem. Prior to the PHE, they would call me every six months and say, you haven't utilized your telehealth benefit. And I'm like, well, I'm not sick. <laughs> I mean, they were almost like saying, you know, why aren't right. you going to the doctor? They said, but there's no co-pair deductible. Do you want us to set you up with our panel physician? So I didn't even get to use my own physician if I wanted to exercise the benefit. And I said, no, I'm good. And they called me a couple times. And then during the PHE, they opened it up to your own doctor, but only, and they were clear that's temporary. So your thoughts on how that could change in the future? Yeah, well, uh, you make a good point about how there's been just a hodgepodge of you know various payer commercial payer policies, and some uh, hew pretty close to Medicare. Um, others uh, have been surprisingly generous with with their um, telehealth uh, coverage. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you have some payers that uh, have completely waived cost sharing for telehealth visits for in-network providers. Um, some some that will waive it if it's COVID related. Some that will just wa waive it. Period to encourage uh, patients to get that care without risking anyone getting infected. Um, and you you have uh, 
a, a lot of uh, diversity in which commercial payers will pay for true telehealth visits, you know, like a 99213, you're going to bill it as a 99213 with a telehealth modifier. They're going to pay for that as an audio only service, uh, whereas Medicare strictly does not. And and Medicare has a lot of statutory obligations that, that limit its ability to do that. But of course, these commercial payers have no such restrictions. It's just how they want to package their product and, and market it and say what benefits people get. Uh, and <clears throat> that's created a, a ton of frustration. Um, uh, of, co- of course, not new if you're in the billing world where you have uh, discrepancies between payers and you literally have to post a cheat sheet of payers with their specific rules for specific you know, uh, coverage policies. And um, a lot of the a lot of the stuff that that I mentioned as far as these benefits um, are time locked. Uh, like, for example, uh, Anthem has said that uh, they're going to cover. Uh, they have this virtual text feature uh, on their on their smartphone app, and their first two sessions you do that for any reason are free through the end of this of 2020, and then after starting now, uh, they're going to charge for it. You don't get two free sessions anymore. Um, some of these free, some of these cost sharing is uh, waived benefits also expire um, at expired at the end of 2020. Some were renewed. Some are tied to the duration of the public health emergency. So there's just a lot to keep track of. There is. And also for the listeners out there, Grant mentions a good point, the hodgepodge out there, because they don't always inform you. You actually have to find it on their website on what isn't happening and what they've rolled back. The cost sharing is a big thing. You know, at the height of the pandemic, you know, last spring, um, a lot of the payers were panicking, or I should say buying into the the whole, let's do whatever we can for patients and not have them have an out-of-pocket. Right. But then as soon as we got into the fall, and, and actually the numbers went down before the spike again in, you know, last month, um, they basically were like, well, we're not going to, you know, now we've w- rolled back where the patients do now have an out-of-pocket. So I have found that a lot of payers, you actually have to go to their their website to find that information. Yeah, uh, and the whole, you know, copay waiver, cost-sharing waiver thing um, has can occasionally be a double-edged sword. I, there's a practice uh, that asked me about their situation where they, they weren't aware that their commercial payers they participate with had waived copays for for these telehealth visits and COVID um, screening. But so like if they come in in person and the visit results in a, a diagnostic test order for COVID screening, um, that visit gets waived. The copay gets waived for that. And they, they weren't aware of it. So they were collecting copays for patients f- for all of these services. And <laughs> oh, now no. they're in a the position of, oh, you know, we got a ton of uh, copays here that we weren't supposed to have held on to. And uh, the practice managers wondering, can I, you know, kind of hold on to these? And, you know, when the person comes in, we'll say, hey, this one's a freebie because we already owe you. Or do I have to uh, send checks back out? And you know, obviously, uh, you know, they have to. And that's going to be, you know, time and, and effort that's that's spent on that. Well, and I think the other thing that there was a lot of misinformation. I mean, you saw how often the uh, FAQs with CMS was updated. It started at uh, 33 uh, pages, and now it's up to like 166 pages because they kept saying, oh, but this, but this, but this. But one of the things is that 
remember sitting at my kitchen table sometime early April and uh, the government officials were, you know, obviously giving us those briefings every almost every day. But they were basically saying something to the effect that all telehealth was out of pocket was waived and that wasn't accurate. What was waived is if it was COVID related, like you said. And so, and then that means that the allowable for Medicare was 100% and the patient didn't have an out-of-pocket or a copay. But if it wasn't COVID-related, you have the option under the CARES Act to waive it, but you're not being reimbursed by anybody. So you're only getting your 80% of allowable. So I think there was a miscommunication or a misunderstanding on that as well. Yeah. And that, that, again, you know, that, those are things that, that were happening so quickly uh, because, like you say, there was just this regulatory blitz uh, where they were releasing stuff um, literally every week, uh, sometimes a couple, couple times during the week, which would amend what was previously released. You know, you look at the, the last two weeks of March and then the first two weeks of April, there's a lot of changes uh, that we were struggling to keep up with. Uh, in, in releasing guidance to uh, to our uh, membership and our, and our readers at, at um, Doctors Management. One of your uh, colleagues at Doctors Management, Sean Weiss, who's also part of our NACHBC, uh, him and I were tag teaming on different articles we were posting on LinkedIn because it was just it was just crazy as far as how that was. But one thing I wanted to pivot a little bit. Remember everyone, the height of the, um, the at the height of the PHE. So again, last March, and again we have seen spikes, but now that the rollout for the vaccine is here, I am starting to see reports about the decline already, not just in deaths, but in ICU. I know it's gotten a lot better in California. We're able to relax some of the opening situations, but at the height, televis- telehealth visits were at sixty to seventy percent. That's pretty high, and now. I would, I'm thinking they're going to decrease once this is over to about 10 to 15%. So I think that's something mm-hmm. you have to think about as well as you put this um, expense into your practice. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I think we should acknowledge that uh, the the specialty of the practice and, you know, types of uh, conditions and patients that they see uh, affects the extent to which they're adopting telehealth. Like you mentioned, I think er- earlier in the conversation, Rheumatologists uh, have not used a ton of telehealth because m- many of their established patients have to present in person to be infused or to receive subcutaneous injections for, for their chronic conditions and, and pain management. Uh, and you know, telehealth is just just nothing to do with those those needs. Um, so a lot of rheumatology practices were not doing a ton of telehealth. Um, and, and then uh, just yesterday, I was speaking to a rheumatology practice that after they had a huge spike in COVID cases in their county, their doctors decided, you know what? Yeah, we'll continue to do in the infusions uh, side of the business because you know we have to. But we're just going to have a policy that mandates telehealth for any other kind of visit, including new patient visits and anything where we, we don't need to actually... Um, infuse you or inject you, it's going to be telehealth or just reschedule uh, just because they had such a high risk of infection. And that's actually brought up a point about the new versus established patient. One of the other things that was under the CARES Act is allowing new patients to be seen under telehealth. Remember, once it gets rolled back, it's an established patient benefit, except in rural areas. 
And so if it's not in a rural area, it's established, which I actually agree with. I think the one once the physician actually gets an, a patient in under a new um, encounter and then can build a profile for that patient, then allowing them to be seen under telehealth after the fact to me is the, for me, best practices in the safest way. Under the PHE, I understand why they allowed the new patient visits, but right. I can see why, why that benefit was there. Uh, as well. But also, we've had some crazy craziness when it comes to who wants to bill for uh, telehealth. I, I mentioned to you, I think in our co first conversation, I had an acupuncturist call me. Now you tell me how that works. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when I see the PT and OT, you know, occupational therapy, I can kind of get. But physical therapy, there are certain benchmarks you have to hit with strengths and weaknesses and improvements. And if you've got a pediatric patient the parents you know it's kind of like trying to teach at home through zoom kids are struggling right now and i think on the medicine side i think that there's a struggle too and i know oncologists are saying that palpable masses you cannot see, see those over to, you know telehealth you can't feel them you can't you know uh, see a breast mass so there's certain things that everyone really has to take a step back and take a breath on telehealth as it is a great I don't want to say stopgap, but a great delivery of medicine with limitations and realize that it's not a replacement for every kind of in-person care. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And um, uh, coming back to, you know, we, we started talking about the, uh, the physician fee schedule final rule for Medicare. Um, that, that is very clear. You can tell that's kind of their philosophy from how they've decided to, uh, uh, what they've decided to do with the Medicare telehealth eligible list. And I should ex explain that real quick. So Medicare maintains uh, a list of services that it covers as telehealth services. And if you just Google uh, Medicare telehealth eligible list, you'll find a link to on the CMS website where you can download this, this list. And uh, it's, it's a zip archive file. And if you extract it, it's a spreadsheet. You'll find where they list all of the CPT and HCPCS codes that are covered. And then very helpfully, they'll also say, is it uh, temporarily covered during the PHE? Uh, is it uh, uh, covered as an audio only service? Yes or no. And they actually update this pretty regularly. Like every couple of months, they'll have adjusted it. And uh, the, the final category of telehealth codes under the fee schedule final rule was permanent additions to the, to that Medicare telehealth eligible list. And, uh, you know, it's actually a very small number of items that are being added on a permanent basis. So that means they're going to be there, you know, regardless of whether or not there's a public health emergency. And it's things like group psychotherapy, uh, home visits for established patients, and then only the, the lower levels of complexity for those, uh, domiciliary rest home custodial care services, again, for established patients, like we were saying, because under normal circumstances, you wouldn't want to initiate a new patient into your care over telehealth because you know you cannot touch the person or really do a physical exam like you were saying. And one thing to clarify too that uh, Grant was saying under the home health, I've had people say, well, isn't everything home health at the patients at home? No, we're talking home health agency, home care patients. So just right. be clarification on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, th there's another one that was in the final rule, um, and, which was the, uh, the, the visit complexity code, the G2211, which 
there have been a lot of questions about. That was going to be made a permanent telehealth eligible code as well as a code you could append uh, to an in-person visit. And that code was tabled until 2024 because people just couldn't figure out what you had to do to get paid for uh, a complex visit. I think it was also they needed to find $3 billion or something to yeah. be able to fund the <laughs> the one-year fix increase they gave us to the uh, the calendar year conversion factor. So they're like, well, let's just let's just delay this thing since nobody knows what to do with it anyway. Yeah. What they ended up doing, as you point out, is uh, delaying that implementation freed up all the money that was going to be allotted to pay for, for the utilization of this code. Because CMS had said they expected this add-on code, G2211, uh, to be billed with up to 90% of office outpatient E&M visits. Uh, and I think it was, you know, if you look at the national average it was this this code was going to pay like $15 per visit so if you're telling me 90% of office outpatient E&Ms are going to pay an extra 15 bucks for over the, the entire Medicare program nationwide uh, that explains why the initial Medicare conversion factor was so low it was like I think a 10% drop from the previous year uh, and then at the last minute uh, as part of the, the stimulus bill that was signed by uh, uh, President Trump before the new year, they delayed this code and then took the money allotted to it and redistributed it to make uh, the conversion factor uh, drop much, much lower. Right. And then also, I think that the the one thing is everybody, I hope that you see that already, even though the conversion factor is still lower than last year. Um, the RVUs for ENMs really increased. I mean, almost twenty percent on some. So, right. You know, because you're the the whole point of, and I don't want to get into an ENM twenty twenty one. That's another story. But since mm -hmm. a lot of people are still using them under the PHE, remember that the reason you're getting so much more money for them is because the thought process over patients over paperwork is that you're spending more time with the patient not that now that you don't have to do the whole bulleted point history and exam now you you know you you now have that time for patients but i think what a lot of practices i'm seeing is now they're saying now i've got more time to get another patient in so there's some issues there but I wanted to, just to get back to our, our topic here, I wanted to just ask your, kind of your last your last question here. What do you think is probably the, the best tip for the day or the tip for the month for our listeners, preparing for the future of telehealth, knowing that regardless of what happens, obviously the, the percentage is going to go down a little bit, but what should they do if they really want to keep a good percentage of telehealth in their office? What would be your, your tip on that? Well, you know, I think... Um... It's kind of in two parts. It's, you know, again, assuming that telehealth has been successful for your practice uh, and it's been embraced by your providers and patients. And we know that the answer is not necessarily yes for, for those questions. But if it is, and, and you think telehealth is going to be an important part uh, of your service mix going forward, then uh, the two parts are, well, first, look at everything that you're depending on waivers for right now and assume the waivers go away. And so you're going to have to do research about whether you're inside or outside of a metropolitan statistical area and therefore would or would not be able to comply with the originating site rule. Um, look at how, if you are eligible to be an originating site, how you would fill out the paperwork you would need to get approval from CMS to deliver telehealth. Um, 
look at the the HIPAA uh, rules and figure out what is a good HIPAA compliant platform to use once the OIG decides to stop being lenient with, you know, consumer apps like Facebook, I mean, uh, FaceTime and Skype. Um, look at how you're marketing telehealth and, and telling your patients uh, about it and, and communicating with them about it, uh, because that's all going to be necessary when certain waivers go away. Uh, and then I think the second piece is look at the compliance, you know, uh, what's your policy right now on obtaining consent for telehealth services and, you know, using an annual form and getting the patients to sign, sign those uh, every time. Um, are you properly, are the, your providers properly documenting for telehealth visits? And that, you know, that's its own can of worms, but obviously, you know, you don't want them to be uh, copying forward physical exams that are impossible to do over telehealth. It's one of the things we've seen as a problem when we audit telehealth services. Um, you know, even if they're doing away with uh, the exam as a requirement as part of the 2021 E&M guidelines, you know, you don't want incorrect stuff appearing in notes. Uh, and certainly if it's not a, a service that's going to be billed under those guidelines, you know, you are going to have to worry about history in the exam. And uh, I think as you mentioned, uh, Terry, the OIG is already beginning to audit telehealth services and, and looking to see, are you documenting? Was there real-time video as well as audio? What was the platform used? Uh, and, and all of those things. So from a compliance standpoint, you have to be prepared. Um, and from a you know, what's going to, what's going to stay and what's going to go away standpoint with the waivers you have to prepare. I agree. And I think the other things that I would just tell our audience or, or our listeners really what, what I would do too, is I would survey your patients, especially based on your patient population, your specialty, ask them specific questions when it comes to telehealth. Was this, did you like it because it was convenient because you didn't have to park, you didn't have to drive to the office, or did you feel like you got a a clinically appropriate visit out of it. That's the first thing. And I would also put on that uh, that survey, if you have an out-of-pocket for those that are commercial plan and don't have to pay an out-of-pocket, but if you have to pay a share of cost, will you pay for it once the public health emergency ends? And I think the last thing you need to look at is what's your primary way of delivering telehealth to your patients, audio only or audio and video visit? Because remember, the audio only will go away in almost every payer, except for maybe one code. And we still have virtual check-ins, but those are worth very little money. So those are things you have to really consider as you do your due diligence for the future. I think those are great points, Terry, and, and uh, speak uh, to the practice management side of it, which is so important. Right. Well, again, thank you, Grant, for be, uh, participating today. We appreciate having you on the show and your insight into this hot topic of telehealth in the healthcare industry. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll talk to you in the near future. Thanks, Terry. It was my pleasure. That's it for us today, everyone. Please join us next month, March 9th, for our discussion with the NSCHBC Healthcare CPAs and the Provider Relief Funds and making sure you're compliant with reporting and accounting for all the money that's been pushed out, the PPP uh, and the HHS funds, and making sure now during tax season that you're appropriate in your reporting. So everyone, make it a great day, a great rest of your month, and thank you for listening to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. Thank you for listening to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. 
Join us on the second Tuesday of each month as our consultants tackle the complexities of navigating the business of medicine. You can reach us on the web at nschbc.org, the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants.